Welcome to this edition of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. My guest today is Sanford Green. He was the artist on the highly acclaimed Power Man Iron Fist series written by David Walker. He is also one of the co-creators along with Chuck Brown on 1000, a Webtoons comic which won the Ringo Award for Best Webcomic this year. Now he has joined forces with David Walker and Chuck Brown to produce Bitter Root, being published through Image Comics. Issue 1 comes out on November 14th. It is a comic about a team of monster hunters during the Harlem Renaissance in 1924. I get to talk to David about growing up down south, what his favorite comics were. We reminisce about Power Man and Iron Fist, what motivates Sanford as an artist, working on 1000 with Chuck Brown, and of course, we'll talk about Bitter Root. Why did the creative team decide to tell this story, and who are the key characters? And of course, I will ask Sanford the questions I ask all my guests to get to know more about him as an individual. This episode is brought to you by the comic book shop in Wilmington, Delaware off Marsh Road, where comics are for everyone and all are welcome. Just be nice. Visit their website, thecomicbookshop.com, for upcoming events and to learn more about them. At the end of this show, when I tell you who's coming up next week, hang on after the closing credits for some bonus content from our interview. And so without further ado, let's get to my interview with Sanford Green about his upcoming comic book with David Walker and Chuck Brown, Bitter Root, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with your background growing up. You grew up in the South, is that correct? Uh, yes, grew up in uh, South Carolina, Charleston. Very good. I have family in North Carolina uh, on my father's side, so I'm familiar with the South. The biggest difference is the barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like growing up there? For me, just being very honest, uh, it was very segregated, but there wasn't any type of i guess as a child you you weren't really necessarily noticing the segregation it was just a part of life you grew up in it you know that being said i had friends that were uh, caucasian or hispanic what have you but it was one of those open secrets if you will where there was a predominantly black institution or uh, um, high school there was a predominantly white school as well and I used to, as I got older, wonder, you know, why these guys are living down the street from me, but they're going to an entirely different school. For the most part, there wasn't really a whole lot of racial tension or anything like that. I guess because things were separate, people were in their in their lanes, and um, there wasn't a whole lot of overlap. And um, I think that was one of those: you're here, we're here, and as long as that's that way, we're we're okay. You know, for the most part, that was what it was like. You know, again, we all got along, but looking back at it, I think it was because there was this underlying segregated setup in the communities. Again, we had the school systems and places of worship, all those things were segregated. But meanwhile, you know, a game or anything like that, that was some uh, some crossover there. So growing up there, how did that experience help shape your values and what is important to you today? Wow. I think I learned to really appreciate what my family had to endure because, again, they made sure that me and my siblings, we were taken care of. They didn't give us any reason 
to doubt that what they're providing wasn't the best. Um, we didn't have those elements that made us aware that there was anything else, really. We had what we had, and we were made to feel like that was the best. That's something that you know I, I really take a lot of heart to because I try to instill that in my children. It's a little harder now because social media kind of floods you with a bunch of different materialistic factors that kind of leads so easily to lead you down these different paths. But for us growing up, that really helped me to be able to see values in the real things that gave me that foundation. So I can pass that on to my children, the working hard, the uh, being above reproach, you know, as far as like your word being the absolute foundation of who you are and making sure that your word is good. Those things are the ones that really helped shape me to be who I am now. Growing up is tough enough as it is for kids. And for me, my happy place was comics. And within those comics, there were some very good values. When you were growing up, one of your favorites was Black Panther, which left a lasting impression on you. What was your first Black Panther series that you read? Interesting enough, it was Black Panther, the character more so than an actual series, because I saw him in various series. I saw him in The Avengers, which was the first time that I came across him. And then I saw him in Fantastic Four and a few other titles. And then I started to look more for him in other titles and honestly wasn't aware that he had his own title until much later. I think at that time, his titles were, at least for where I lived, there wasn't a lot of comics available just yet. The mainstream or the more popular mainstream characters like uh, your Batman, Spider-Man, characters of that nature. So any he was kind of a, for lack of better words, a second tier, maybe even a third tier character at that time. So he was one of those characters that I saw sporadically, but wasn't necessarily seeing him and realize who he really was until much later. Honestly, the character that I gravitated towards before Black Panther was Power Man. He didn't have a mask. And that was one of those things where as a young African-American kid growing up in the South, again, you know, having the background that I had to see this character who had the complexion that was similar to mine, that really kind of captured my attention. And that allowed me to really dig deeper. I wanted to go deeper with that character. I had no idea who he was. I just saw him hanging out with Captain America, hanging out with Daredevil, Spider-Man, and um, all these other mainstream characters. And I also saw him actually being able to withstand their powers. He was just as powerful or at least somewhere near on that level. And that really captured my imagination. It fascinated me to the point to where I wanted to know as much as I can about the character. Oddly enough, full circle, looking back in the last couple of years, to be able to work on that character is pretty profound to know that that was a character that really captured my attention and my imagination as a kid and to be able to work on him. But that's one of those things that, you know, you look back at it and it's one of those serendipitous moments. Growing up, I would go to my local 7-Eleven, 
go through the squeaky spinner rack and pick out you know luke cage power man and i always loved his rogues gallery they were like chemistro mr fish piranha jones <laughs> and the first issue i picked up was number 28 which had the smoking billboard and cockroach was standing in front of it with a double barrel shotgun and mm-hmm. shot luke cage now He's one of the most powerful heroes. He's impenetrable. His skin is impenetrable. Why would you bother shooting him? It's like shooting Superman with a gun. It's like a waste of fire firepower. Right. <laughs> but still right. they tried. But that was you know, Yeah. But that was part of the fun of it. And that was a great series. And then when it shifted to Power Man and Iron Fist, it was a great buddy book. And you must have read that and really absorbed it because when you did your run with David Walker, it was clearly among one of the best ever. And I don't have a question. It's just thank you for that very much. And I hope that someday you can return to it. But did you read a lot of those Paramount Iron Fist? You must have. I mean, you have a very good grasp of the humor and the relationship between the two characters. Honestly, it wasn't until much later that I started to really read the Paramount Iron Fist comics. Again, growing up, comics were very sporadic. Uh, sparse, not necessarily me collecting, but just what was available. Like you said, you know, you go to your local 7-Eleven and if you're lucky, and I and I was at the time, I wasn't really knowledgeable of you have to go every month to pick up the next issue. Or even if I did that, there's no guarantee that that next issue would be there, which was absolutely the most frustrating thing ever. <laughs> right. You, I remember you that. Know, like, You know, and that's very frustrating at the moment as a kid. But looking back at it, the charm of that was the excitement, the buildup to that next issue. I would beg my mom, you got to make sure the date, this is the time that I need to go back to the the local 7-Eleven. My mom is looking at me like, "Okay, it's not that serious, is it? And I'm like, yes, it is. It's a matter of life and death for me. But I just didn't get a lot of the issues, unfortunately, as a child. But later on, especially once I started to uh, do more work at Marvel, um, I did a lot of back issue searching. And I got most of the run of Power Man and Iron Fist from the late 70s, early 80s. When we started a series, that's, you know, I had that as a foundation. Honestly, uh, David Walker, he's such a great uh, scribe that he knew way more than I did. Honestly, I, I just enjoyed the awesome illustrations and um, wasn't as well versed in the stories he was. I knew characters, I knew overall situations, overall stories, but not some of the nuances that he brought. We took a, a fresher, kind of a fresh take on those characters because. We wanted to reverse the roles, the, the identities of Luke and Danny. Uh, Danny was more of in the 70s, 80s. He was kind of the Zen centered, very, you know, regal, serious, kind of hard edged, intense character. Luke Cage was a, a lot more of the black exploitation um, aspect because those things were popular back then. And that was kind of the, the zeitgeist of, of that moment. So we felt like they needed to have some maturing in their characters, some role reversal, if you will. And um, that's honestly probably one of the best decisions uh, we made was to give them that fresh outlook. That's been one of the fondest career opportunities I've had. The humor would not have been 
as impactful had it not been for your art because the expressions on their faces, all of that, I would laugh out loud. And that's pretty rare for me to laugh out loud at a comic book. You know, I don't always do that. Not that they're bad. It just takes a lot to get me to actually laugh out loud. Same thing when I watch TV. So when I do that, well, you know. (laughs) And then having all those rows in there too from the 70s, it was like the icing on the cake for me. Because whether you knew that stuff or not, it was still cool. But for me, it right. was a bonus. You know, <laughs> it up to me. Oh, yeah. We intentionally looked at those characters to give a nod to fans like yourself. We wanted to just show you guys that we were paying attention. We want to give you a moment uh, just as much as we wanted to give a fresh look on those characters. And I just wanted to add that I agree with you, too, that when I was growing up buying comics, it was difficult to get every issue when you were going to a newsstand, a drugstore, a convenience store, because I'd sometimes get issues out of sequence. Or there would be three months of comics sitting there, but there was, even though there's that frustration, there was the surprise. You didn't know what was going to be there. but right. And you also didn't know what was coming up other than what it said on the last page of the book. Coming up next, or you know, some cliffhanger. There were right. there were very few spoilers at that time because it just didn't exist. You know, thinking back on on that time, that's what made it even more special was when you had those captions to kind of help fill you in. Because even if you missed two issues or an issue or whatever, there's something that took place in that previous issue. If you don't have it. And you would read and it will have this small caption within the frame, see issue so-and-so where this took place. And it was almost like homework, like not even homework, <laughs> bad choice of words, um, because as a kid, we didn't like homework, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but it was a quest because now I'm like, they've given me, you know, something to go on an adventure for. And again, I just didn't have the resources to find those comics or those issues. But at least I know that I wasn't crazy. You know, like, what did I miss? I don't know what just happened here. They gave you that guide. So that was also pretty special. That's one reason why I still like to buy back issues because I can grab any one. Right. You know, I can still get caught up if I am in the middle of an arc and it's a book from like the 70s or 80s. Oh, well, there's enough captions there and references, I'll figure it out. Absolutely. As an artist, what drives you? What makes you get out of bed in the morning and get to the drawing board? Fear. (laughs) (laughs) I I wake up in a cold sweat and I am so afraid that I'm going to end up either rushing the job and it's not up to Uh, any of the standards that would make me feel comfortable about showing my work to the masses, that or just the mere fact that just trying to earn an honest living and knowing that it doesn't come to you, you have to seize it. I jokingly say fear, but in a lot of ways that's true because I am very motivated by making sure that I'm not letting time just pass by. I don't want to be that person that just kind of thinks, oh, I got time on this. Oh, okay. And trust me, I'm guilty of that as well. But there's also that side of me to where I've had those experiences where I said, oh, I have time. And then I don't have time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Something happened between whatever. 
and I lose all that time and I the job is rushed or not up to par my standards, stress, the sleepless nights. And it's funny because I used to work late at night and, and I thought that I could get a lot more done. But honestly, especially having a family now, you know, the kids get up in the morning, they go to school, my mm-hmm. wife, she goes about her day and I really don't get a lot of rest because of that kind of schedule. I mean, everyone else is on a normal schedule but me. So that makes me the odd man out, which means they're not going to change their schedules just for my schedule. My schedule is the one that just has to fit in the slots that's allowed. And I just learned a hard lesson about that. So my schedule is completely changed. I get up as early as sometimes six in the morning because then I have a real full day and not just that weird schedule that feels like it's my schedule, but it's really not my schedule. <laughs> it's really not my schedule. I, I try to make it my, I shouldn't even say it feels like my schedule. I try to make it my schedule, but life doesn't allow you to have that kind of schedule. I know I'm talking around it a lot, but you know, I, I am very concerned or motivated by just my time and the fear of letting that time slip away. So that's the biggest thing I think that kind of keeps me focused. I think we have very similar motivations. <laughs> my schedule's <laughs> the same way. The sooner I get up, the better because my time is not my own with family. And I'm also motivated in a way by fear is that I realize I'm only as good as my last hit. You know, that fame, exactly. when I use the word fame, is kind of extreme, but it's fleeting. Mm-hmm. You know, you better just keep producing and keep, you know, your work, whatever you like to do. You want to keep at it because I always have that fear. Something could come up. And if I put off doing this, something's going to interfere and I'm going to fall behind. So I got exactly. to get on it now. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you said it. You said it a lot better than I did. I'm, you know, so, yeah, I think. I'm just agreeing with you. I know. I, I, <laughs> I should ask you the questions and let you answer. <laughs> with your work, what brings you the most satisfaction and the most frustration? I think just my, like I said, I alluded to it earlier, my standard artistically. Yeah, I mean, there's moments where I feel completely confident with what I'm doing and I'm ready to show it to the world. And then there's moments, and actually at the same time, I can show it. And the minute it's out there, I regretted it. <laughs> oh, no, I should have did this. I should have, you know, what have you. It's always that weird second guessing. I mean, when a new series drops, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hide under the bed for at least a day, you know, because it's out there now. I mean, it's already kind of out there. but. um you know, a lot of people are seeing, you know, our preview pages, but still it's challenging for me because there's so many things I'm seeing that if I could do it again, I would do differently. Well, not so many things, but there are some things. Honestly, I think the biggest thing is just my standard. I try to do things that will keep me excited and feel good about and be willing to share. And then I'm just at the same time, just feeling like, oh, no, I shouldn't have never put that out there. <laughs> you know, but um, I guess that kind of goes and comes. There are times where I feel great no matter what. And then there's times where I don't. Well, you're not alone. A lot of artists, creators feel that way when they put something out there. After a while, they're like, oh, I would have done that differently. But you have to have a point where you say, it's done. 
to make a deadline. For me, whether I'm working for work or pleasure, if I'm writing some kind of narrative, either for a presentation or for myself, any kind of interruption throws me off. It breaks my rhythm. Now, when you're working on your art, do you cut yourself off from all distractions in some way? Do you mute the phone, not pay attention to emails? Do you find all those other influences from the outside distracting? Well, I do podcasts while I'm working. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just, I, um, I try to. I try to keep my time very sacred. But again, life, it has a, a way of prevailing and you have to um, adhere to that. And that's not a necessarily a bad thing. And that's just, I think, a part of growing. You just learn how to deal with all the different elements outside of your work. I think it makes you a better artist because you learn to truly understand how to focus, how to concentrate. If you had all the time in the world, no other issues or, or dependents, if you will, like a family or or any other loved one or what have you, relationships, dogs, whatever, cats, if you have any of those types of responsibilities, school even, you will find time to make these things work. If they're important to you, you will find time to do all those things. I think that has helped me tremendously over the last few years. That's very true. The more time you have, the more time you have to spend. But when the pressure's on, amazingly, you can get things done with less time when, if they're important. Yeah, I know. I right. Same thing with the family. <laughs> we were talking before we began recording about New York Comic Con. I wasn't there. You were. Where I was, though, only for a day, and I didn't run into you, I was at Baltimore Comic Con, where yeah. you received the award, you and your team, for 1,000 Best Webcomic. Yes. The Ringo Award. The Ringo Award, absolutely. You must be thrilled to have won that. <laughs> uh, it's definitely a satisfaction there. Um, gratitude, of course. Humbled by it. Somewhat surprised by it, to be honest with you. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where you hear people say, I've never won anything before. I think the thing is, it's such a journey. This project is so close to the vest. You were at the ceremony. I was only there Sunday. I shared a little bit about what the project meant to me, means to me. It's a very personal project of my former co-creator. He passed away from cancer um, in 2010. His name is uh, James Bruce Brown the third. We go back to our college years when we were freshmen in college and Two totally different backgrounds, and somehow comics brought us together. It's kind of funny, you know, going back to the earlier questions. You know, he's a white guy from the South. If you were to see him, you would think, without uh, going too far down the stereotypical path, you would think this guy is Confederate flag carrying. <laughs> you know, he just is the stereotype, the look, unfortunately. And then myself, totally opposite from that. And yet, there was all the barriers were broken down. Part of it was because of comics. Our personal uh, spiritual um, aspects were very similar, and that was the cream of it. The comics were the other part of that. It was like, okay, we're brothers. I think that's why the award meant that much more, because I know what this thing, how it was put together and what we went through. And then, you know, to kind of get the reward was kind of a nice little cherry on top. 
you know, to show that, wow, this thing has been approved, <laughs> you know, like, and it's weird because it wasn't approved because of all those things I just said. But at the same time, I can reflect on that and get even more joy because of those personal aspects of it. You know, it's really nice to hear that comics brought people together. I hear so much negativity lately about people fighting over comics. That's nice to hear for a change. If he were alive, that whole deal, he would be one of the people outspoken against all of that and all that good stuff. I mean, he was a champion of, you know, inclusion and, you know, fairness. Also, just making sure that every voice is heard. Well, I'm glad you brought James up because I noticed at the end of each chapter, it was dedicated to him. And now I know why. There you go. <laughs> now, it comes out on Thursday. As I read through them, I realized that there weren't like a ton of episodes last year, but I'm also looking at, oh, there are longer episodes. And of course, you have the music added in, which is really cool. Especially, I think a lot of people commented about the second episode where with the click of a gun, the music comes in. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome. You know, So it was uh, really cool. So are you going to do about the same number of episodes per year? Is that your plan? Because I know you had a little gap there, a little hiatus for a while. It's funny. I just got a message from our letterer. We're launching, well, we launched last week, the next arc. And um, we'll be doing that for the foreseeable future. And, uh, you know, we're, we're excited. Fans are definitely um, screaming long overdue. Welcome back. And they're excited for us and excited for where this is going. That's great. It's online webtoons, folks. And that subscribe you saw last night, that was me. <laughs> Click the button. I read a lot of comics through line webtoons, as well as going to my local comic shop. There are certain ones I do follow religiously on that. Which ones? I'm curious. The Middle Age. Steve Conley. Dean Haspel has his Red Hook series, um, the new Brooklyn that I follow on there. And there's the Strange Tales of Oscar Zahn that I also read on there. And Tom Zoller had one on there, Warning Label. And I think he has another one coming out. Those for sure. I know there's more off the top of my head I can't think of, and I don't mean to leave anybody out, but those definitely are on my subscribe list. I read those whenever they come out. Oh, that's awesome. And you know, and that's the great thing about Webtoons, and it's very unique. I don't know if this is me doing a shameless plug or just doing a promotion, free promotion for Webtoons. I think they are where the future of comics will be. Not completely. There's, I think the printed medium is going to be around, period. But just similar to what you just said, uh, you're probably one of a few hundred of the brick and mortar guys, the Wednesday Warrior guys that are switching over to the digital format more and more. If that's the case, then, like I said earlier, I think that's where things are going to go. And um, I'm excited to be a part of the company. They definitely have a great mission statement. Their focus is really you know, awesome. They're coming out with even more titles. I was a little, admittedly, I was a little um, self-conscious about my title being on this platform initially because it felt like it was one of the few. Uh, but now with Fabian Nizieza, um, Warren Ellis, Stan Lee even, there's a lot of other well-known, established traditional comic creators that are coming on this platform. Stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more. Yeah, it's a good platform, but there's still a space for, and I'll always have a love for, the print medium. And speaking of which, through Image Comics, you have coming out Bitter Root, and you're working with Chuck Brown, who's your partner on 1000, and David F. Walker, 
who you work with on Power Man Iron Fist. So the whole gang's together on Bitter <laughs> Root. This book is about a team of monster hunters during the Harlem Renaissance in 1924. And here's the hook. The monsters are people infected with racism and hate who are cured by consuming this bitter root. But some of the hunters prefer just to kill these monsters. So everyone's not on the same page. So there seems to be an allegory there about oppression and racism in society today. What did the creative team see or experience that made you decide this was the story you wanted to tell? You're pretty much correct in our experiences, or at least what we've been seeing um, here today. I mean, you kind of alluded to this earlier, just how comics have just the medium been infiltrated by a lot of these same topics, you know, in terms of identity and what's allowed, what's not allowed, or who should be the voices, you know, carrying this banner. And a lot of that has a lot of racial and uh, these bias undertones. If you can have a discussion, you might come away with something. But no one is really necessarily trying to have a discussion. I shouldn't say no one. There's those who are the loudest voices that don't want to have a discussion. They just want to create a, a mandate. That's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. I've had a few discussions with people that are sympathizers of some of the, the ideals or whatever you want to call it from those who are championing this corner of the medium. I've had some conversations and I think I left the conversations um hope that they left with uh, similar sentiments. I had similar conversations with um, some creators that were sympathizers of some of the ideals and directions that the interested party, if you will, they had some points that stepping back, some of it I can see, but it's getting muddied and clouded in a lot of other rhetoric that's very negative and and it just kind of washes away any of the valid points. So it makes none of it really valid. If, if that makes sense, it's kind of like the one rotten apple spoiling the mm -hmm. whole bunch kind of thing. But it's not even just one. It's like a lot of rotten apple, you know, without going too far down that deal. So for us, the real message is not even the stuff that people are fussing about in this comic industry, per se. The real message is not even necessarily political. It's bigger than that. Honestly, we weren't even thinking that deep about the initial idea of this. It was just the time period we thought was really awesome and very unique. And not a lot has been done in that time period, comic-wise, that we know of. So that's where our interest really peaked. We just kind of jumped all over that aspect. But then once we started to go a little deeper um, creatively, we started to discover that um, we're not only dealing with a special time period, but we're also looking at this time period and we're examining what happened to it. Where did it kind of fall apart or dissipated, if you will? And we started thinking, you know, this is a magical time. If you really think about it, that a portion of this country had such an influence on the entire world, if you will. That's pretty powerful. That's magical, if you will. At some point, it didn't exist anymore. So we started just looking at that from a almost a supernatural aspect. Like that's almost otherworldly kind of stuff. And that's where the brainstorming came in. And we started looking at this from that aspect of more of a supernatural, 
fantastical aspect of it. And we're huge fans of Hellboy and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. All those different kind of sub-genre stories that has kind of a period piece wrapped around it. We really got the ball rolling once we started to put those pieces together the time period and the fantastical aspect of it, and then to go deeper and make it even more fantastical. And then at the bottom of all of that, hopefully you'll see the message that we're trying to uh, share. Now, the book Bitter Root was announced at Rose City Comic Con just over a year ago. So you've all done a lot of research about the period to prep for telling the story. What did you learn about the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s that surprised you and is there anything you would encourage our listeners to dig into further about that period? You know, what's interesting is what I learned around the Harlem Renaissance, what happened a little bit before and to some degree a little bit after. That's probably the most amazing or surprising to me. I don't know if it's surprising or it's just one of those things where you're looking at it and you're like, wow, this was a lot to, to take in. It's a part of it that I want the readers to kind of to read upon something that took place before the Harlem Renaissance is the reason why this family is split in their convictions on how to deal with this thing. It's something that actually happened historically, but we're using it as a hard foundation to build our story. And who are the key players in the story? What is their motivation? You have the Sangria family. And again, the major or the at least the main characters, you have Cullen, Blink, Berg, Ford, Miss Etta, and they're all Sangria is their last name. I think Cullen, we're trying to make him somewhat of the focus right now. He's a young hunter. They're all hunters, but he's a little younger than the rest of the family. Blink is his cousin. She's a year or two older, but he's the youngest and he's seeing things a little differently. It's kind of like our young generation now. They just see things differently, <laughs> you know, and trying to help him embrace his, his role and his purpose is a little challenging for the rest of the family simply because he is younger and he's seen a lot more, or at least he's seen a lot more through his older family. And that's kind of how it is. You know, I have older brothers, older cousins, and I learn from their mistakes, you know, as a younger one. And that's kind of what he is going through. He's learning from all their mistakes. He's like, it's not working the way that you're doing it. There's got to be another way. And they're pretty hard and steadfast on their direction because that's how it's been done. Part of the family is split in how they deal with these monsters. One believes in curing, the other pretty much believes in killing. For the most part, he's somewhere even more outside of those two viewpoints. So for the reader, we want the reader to be able to see why he's thinking this way. Um, and the rest of the family, again, um, the ones that I just mentioned, for the most part, they are unified in the purpose of healing or curing. But then there's one or two that are straggling and they want to basically veer off the other direction, if you will. The other part of the family, they're not around, but they are the one that believes in killing. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. And people won't have to wait long because on November 14th, issue number one comes out. All shall be eventually revealed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
It's so hard. I mean, this is our first creator own. So it's kind of hard to know what to share, what not to share. We don't have anyone lording over us telling us, you can't say this, you can't do this. Continuity. You know, we had the watchdogs at Marvel when it came to anything that we did there. So we knew exactly what not to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) This is fairly new. So um, by all means, definitely, please check the story out. Stick with the story because it's going to be pretty awesome. Well, before we conclude, I have fun questions that I ask all my guests. They're not difficult, just things you can have fun with to learn more about you as a person. Plastic instead of paper. (laughs) 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 Just get it out of the way, right? <laughs> when you're not working, what do you like to do to relax? How do you take some time off, rest and relax? Oh my goodness. I don't know if this is necessarily uh relaxing per se. I watch sports. There's no relaxing in sports. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Especially if you have a if you're a hardcore fan of a certain team or what have you. So football, me and Jason Latour. We're huge Carolina Panther fans. There's a few comic fans that are pretty hardcore sports folks. Uh, me and Jason Aaron, we have a commonality in um, college football. And again, there's no relaxing in that at all. So I don't know. I find joy in it. <laughs> but yet, it's the most excruciating type of joy. Honestly, I um, I run. I walk and run. That's probably the one thing that um, I can find some relaxation in that. It probably helps with your work a lot because you're at the table working on your art. So you need to get up and move around. I saw myself in a photo about a year ago, and I said to myself, you got to change. There's no (laughs) way you're going to be doing these interviews online and tell, gosh, you got to deal with that. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Thinking back to a birthday, any birthday that you've had, what was special about it? That's a really interesting question because... No one asks a question, I think, on that level in terms of the personal aspect of it. I think for guys, we don't really think about birthdays quite like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, I just want to be left alone. Let me work (laughs) on football. Let me be amongst my dirty laundry and watch games all day. I guess a few years back, um, three years ago, my wife, she invited a lot of my friends over. I didn't know they were coming. I thought I was going to be watching football by myself. And there were friends that I hadn't seen in forever, which were, you know, high school, some college friends. You know, that was kind of special. At first, I was like, why are you bringing all these folks over here? I, I want to be alone. But <laughs> it came, you know, you realize you have all these relationships. When you work in seclusion 12 hours a day, it does kind of make you feel like you're missing out on a whole lot of things relationships and stuff like that. So that kind of really helped to bring me back to what's most important, and that's uh, having strong relationships. So that was really special. Now, thinking back to when you were about middle school age, on your bedroom walls, what posters and pictures did you have? I didn't have too many, but I was a hip-hop fan, and I had a poster of LL Cool J on my wall because I thought he was the most awesome. He was almost like a comic book character to me. You know, because he had muscles and stuff. <laughs> Public Enemy, they were also kind of hero-like for me. Uh, you know, of course, I had a couple of uh, Spider-Man posters and things of that nature. You know, what's even more interesting, it wasn't a whole lot of posters as much as it was my drawings. My mom would put my drawings on the walls. That was the beginning stages of me kind of realizing that um, 
I may want to do this one day. She kind of made me feel proud. It's like your kids, if you put something on the refrigerator or some achievement on a refrigerator or a wall, a plaque, whatever, it gives them that sense of self-worth. So I think that's a big foundation for me. That's great. To have that support from your parents is really, really important. You're not going to have any support in this question. It's hypothetical, though. You're stuck on a deserted island. If you had one book with you for pleasure, one book to kind of help pass the time, what would that one book you would want to have with you? Can I cheat a little with that? Because it's really one volume. Okay. The original official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Okay. Now, that was the one book that I got every issue of. Somehow, I found a way to get every issue growing up. Again, that was exactly what it was. It was the official handbook of the entire Marvel Universe. So that's how I learned about every character. And I drew from that book religiously. I'm still trying to find a volume of that today. I'm looking for, like, you know, they they did the updated versions of it, and I hate those. (laughs) It doesn't feel as genuine as what I saw in the original volume. Now, I don't have those. So what did they change in the update? The art. I want the Michael Goldens, the Art Adams. You know, the John Burns, those guys were all like the Paul Smiths. All those dudes were the key artists for the entire run of those things. And, you know, they got the best artists to do the character designs. And man, I loved it. So the later one, the updated one, is more like a house art style where everything's basically the same style. Basically, you know, it has that airbrush look to it. Oh, okay. That's disappointing. It's very manufactured looking. Okay. Very, very much so. Another hypothetical, if a toy company were to make an action figure of you, what would be, yeah, yeah. What would be your (laughs) accessory or accessories you would want to have included with the action figure? A steampunk backpack full of steampunk art supplies. What would steampunk art supplies look like? I have no idea. That's the first thing that popped in my head, I guess, because I'm (laughs) dunking this dude right now with a steampunk backpack. So that, (laughs) I just think that'd be a cool visual. Not that it will serve any purpose other than looking cool. Now, when you're (laughs) relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? Honestly, I'd like um, cider, the hard cider. Oh, like woodchuck or something like that? Woodchuck or the amber. Angry Orchard. I'm sorry, I said amber. I've heard of that. Yep. I like that a lot. And my last question, what is the one question that someone has not asked you in an interview? Something you want people to know that just has never come up in an interview. (laughs) Honestly, if they haven't asked it, I'm not willing to lend. (laughs) (laughs) I do get that answer sometimes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think that's probably good that they don't ask certain questions. You know, to be honest with you. But yeah, I can't really think of anything. I've been asked so many questions and I've visited a lot of schools. And Mm -hmm. trust me, they ask everything. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm in the clear with that. Good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, Bitterroot's coming out November 14th. 1000 is going to be on Webtoons. Sanford Green, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks today. Thank you. Coming up next week, Ed LaRoche. On The Warning, also published through Image Comics, Ed is doing the story and art on the book. Ed and I talk about his early days working on comics back when he worked for Malibu in the mid-1990s and what the state of the comic book industry was like back then. Ed also talks about some of the drawbacks of doing animation work. And then we get into his book, The Warning. And here's a synopsis of the story. An enormous machine is slowly materializing in a major metropolitan city on the West Coast. No one knows who sent it, except... Perhaps 
the malevolent beings gliding silently through the inky vastness of space toward Earth. In response, a joint multinational combat brigade called Gladiator 2-6 is deployed, outfitted with next-generation military science and weapons, and they are tasked with stopping any extraterrestrial threat that emerges. And the first issue goes on sale November 28th. And again, stay tuned after the credits for some bonus material from my interview with Sanford Green. If you like what you heard today and you've liked other interviews I've done, please rate and review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. You can even subscribe through YouTube if you prefer. That way you don't miss a single episode. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. And on Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. And you can send your emails to contact at creatortalks.com. Thank you for spending time with me this week. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. want to step on what you were discussing about being down south because your experience is much different than mine but i will share with you when i was down there with my uncle i was about oh, 11 12 years old uh-huh. and this was a very rural part of north carolina and this was back in the 70s so it's not as rural now but back then it was rural man and so we yep. went to a convenience store like a little little shop guy had a pinball machine i played pinball and the ball got stuck at the top where there's the big thousand point bumper and it just started firing away and everybody's watching me and it's just like and i'm racking up points and he's like wow and the owner he's an older much older guy he says where are you from and i said uh wilmington and he just uh, stopped and said he's a damn yank oh yeah my uncle's like let's go let's go chris let's go let's go and he's like is that is that wilmington north carolina boy and he's like let's go chris come on come on i'm like okay okay what 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 (laughs) the the, the reaction holy cow That's funny. That's funny. That's probably one of the more flattering sentiments I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, yeah. You honestly came out in a good space there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've heard it all. I've heard it all.